Come Holy Spirit and have your way with us. Root out all darkness that the light of Christ may live in us and among us. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning again, Redeemer family, and good morning to everyone who's watching us online. Welcome again to our weekly worship service, and welcome to this third of three sermons in this series on discipleship. A sermon series, as I've said, that we're not going to work our way through as an academic or intellectual exercise, but this is something that we're going to live into as a body of believers here at Christ the Redeemer. You see, discipleship is the foundation of who we are as Christians. So discipleship is the future of where we're going here at Christ the Redeemer. So we started with the working definition of what it is to be a disciple. I'll remind us of it. A disciple disciple is someone who actively imitates the life and teaching of the master. And discipleship is a deliberate apprenticeship that makes a carbon copy of that teacher. And we're doing that here at Christ the Redeemer through our family formation and the lay leadership covenants that I've been talking to you about, developing a cradle-to-grave process to form mature and confident Christian disciples, and a certification and a validation that those who are stepping forward to lead have been properly vetted and validated. The reason for our efforts, I think, are plainly before us. As we've said many, many times, our world is divided and enslaved by sin. This year I made a New Year's resolution of sorts, a resolution to get off of social media except for the things that we're doing here at the church. I found that I simply couldn't stand it anymore. It was becoming toxic to my soul. What began several years ago as a great way to reconnect with friends and interact with them, people that I grew up in North Carolina with and people that I knew in college and so on and so forth, has devolved into posts that I just don't want to read, advertisements that I'd rather not see, and pages and people that it wants me to follow that I just don't want to be social media friends with. I'll give you an example of something that happened not too long ago. I'm older, as you can see, so I'm on Facebook, my kids are on Instagram, and the next generation is on TikTok, right? TikTok was all the rage. So I figured my kids had TikTok accounts, and I was looking for a way to, you know, helicopter parent as we do when our kids go off to college. And so I set up a TikTok account of my own, thinking that I might just see if I could see my kids online for relatively innocuous purposes, right? So I set up an account, and when you set up a social media account, it asks you, what are your interests? So I listed three. 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 Sports, religion, and politics. So I set up my account, and I started scrolling through TikTok after setting up my account, and guess what I saw? Posts about sports, religion, and politics. And then I went to see if I could find my kids. That's all I did. I went to see if I could find my kids on TikTok. After that attempt, I set it down. About an hour later, I picked it back up. Guess what was in my feed? Women, women, women. Dressed in ways and doing things that are not worth mentioning out loud and shouldn't be happening at all. So I just got rid of it. 
and I got rid of Instagram, and I've made my Facebook account passive. I feel like I've been pounding the pulpit for weeks now about our political divisions and the social unrest that we continue to see in the streets, and all the mainstream media wants to do is to fuel the fire. I was a journalism major. This is what I majored in. Reporting is not unbiased. It's not balanced. Their own language is inflammatory. Have you ever watched a weather report recently? Storms raging across the country, affecting 30 million people with pounding snowstorms like we haven't seen in a long time. I mean, it makes you afraid to walk out your front door. It's weather. And I want to tell you about something else that's bothered me more and more, and this is going somewhere. Do you know how hard it is to find good, wholesome entertainment on television and in the movies these days? I gave up on Netflix, and I'm not too happy with Amazon and Hulu either. Hollywood is not just sick, it is toxic. Toxic. It's also pervasive, and now its perverted message is normal. And guess what? It's just one click away. All of this is just one click away for you and for me. And guess who else? For our children. And one day for their children. What's worse is I could go on and on about so many things I haven't said. And if this were a conversation, you could go right along with me. And many of us have because it's frustrating. Friends, we need to say it like it is. This world hasn't just turned away from us. This world is turning against us as Christians. When we were young, when I was young, Christianity used to at least be a part of the cultural conversation. Now it seems like it's okay to have a conversation about anything but Christianity. And if a Christian or Christianity is mentioned in the media, I can tell you it's not to extol the virtues of what we're doing right in this world. It's to expose us, to mock us, to belittle us for what Christians are doing wrong. Watch a sitcom. Who's the idiot now? It's the Christian. Who do they make fun of now? The fundamentalist Christian. That's who's mocked now in our world. And we know what will happen if we do nothing. The war between good and evil never stands still. If we say nothing and if we do nothing, then we can expect more of what we have, more antagonism, more attacks. And let's be clear about this too, it will get worse. You know this. We're already hearing rather loud whispers about Christianity being labeled as hate speech. Some legislators are actively working on ways to remove the tax-exempt status of the churches. More than assertive, my friends, it's aggressive, and it could easily, easily end up in open persecution right here in America. So we ask the question, why are you here? Why am I here? Why are we here? Why do billions of people all over the world, in spite of this, still gather together to worship Jesus Christ? In some countries where it's legal... And in many countries where it's not. You've all read the stories of the missionaries who travel in the night many, many hours to go into the deep woods and find authentic Christian fellowship and worship at the risk of their very lives. 
Of course, we worship Jesus in the hope of being better disciples ourselves. That by gathering together here and listening to the Word of God and participating in the sacraments, that we might become those carbon copies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we also know this. We don't worship Jesus for ourselves alone. But we worship Him for the sake of others. And for the hope of others. Think about the prayers that you and I pray that we pray for other people. The intercessions that we offer for our family and our friends, for the church, for our country, and for the nations. Are we not here in part because of the hurt that we feel in our hearts for other people? And are we not here with the hope that they themselves would become disciples of Jesus Christ too? Now I know that I've just painted with a very broad brush and I've given us a whole lot to think about and we haven't even gotten to the Bible yet. But I've given us a lot of background for one reason. Because as we finally enter into the text this morning, I want us to ask ourselves just one question. What is it? What is it that we've been commissioned to do by Jesus Christ? In the context of the great commission that Jesus has left us with, how do we get people to the point of even wanting to be baptized? And how do we help them arrive at the place where they're willing to obey all that Jesus has commanded us? And I say that because if we ourselves are going to become those carbon copies of our teacher, and if we're going to know how to live out the great commission then we need to know exactly what it is that Jesus has commissioned us to do. So, I want to read the gospel to us again, as I've done the last couple of weeks. I want to ask us to see ourselves in this story one more time as we go along, and then I'll offer some commentary that I hope will be useful to us in our lives as disciples. They, meaning the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. So something like this. The scene looks something like this. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him, and at once, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Well, the first thing, friends, I think that we should see is fairly obvious. This is a cosmic battle between good and evil. This is a cosmic battle between good and evil. Jesus has come to destroy the forces of wickedness in this world, and there is no better evidence of that than his casting a demon out of a man. And there's another interesting observation here. Not only is this a battle between good and evil, but I want us to notice where Mark puts it in the ordering of his gospel. Get this. 
Mark's gospel opens with John the baptizer preaching in the desert, calling people to repentance. It moves from there directly to Jesus' baptism and his temptation by the devil in the desert. It goes straight from there to Jesus' own preaching and the calling of the first disciples that we looked at last week. And then this story comes right after that. In other words, with his disciples in tow, standing in the synagogue on the Sabbath amongst a rather large crowd, Jesus' very first act of public ministry, according to Mark's gospel, is this. It is to declare and to demonstrate the victory of good over evil. Don't miss that. In Mark's gospel, Jesus' very first act of public ministry is to declare and demonstrate the triumph of good over evil, and he does that by casting an evil spirit out of a man. Now, you know this. It's been said that if you remove one letter from good, you get God, and if you add one letter to evil, you get devil. And that's a fun way to say that, but I want to say it so that we see this next part very clearly. My friends, these battles that we are experiencing here on earth in the physical, they have their roots in the spiritual world. They do, they do, they do. These battles that we are experiencing here in our physical lives, they have their roots in the spiritual realm. And here's the difficult part. A lot of people just don't like to talk about it. Many people have forgotten about it. Others would rather ignore it. In biblical times, everybody, everybody believed in good and evil spirits in the world. Sadly, now, many people are dabbling in it. Oh, the rise of mediums and fortune tellers and how it's okay to do these things and still call yourself a Christian? It's beyond me. The Bible's very clear about this. So I want to paraphrase a very powerful idea that I read from our Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright this past week because it provoked in me something that I think we all need to think about as disciples. Wright says this. So good. He said, When the church learns to speak and to act, when the church learns to speak and to act with the authority of Jesus, then we will both see the saving power of God unleashed in this world once more. And we will find a similar heightened opposition from the forces of evil. Friends, let me say this again. The battles that we are experiencing in the physical, they have their roots in the spiritual. This is a fundamental truth that we Christians have to, have to, have to acknowledge if we're going to make any progress in this world. But we also have to, have to, have to remember this as we talk about this. Paul says it in Ephesians 6. We know this passage. Our battle is not against flesh and blood meaning that the fight is not supposed to be against each other. Why not? Because we are all, 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 every human being, no matter what they believe or how they behave, we are all made in the image of God. But Paul continues, it is the principalities and the powers against the wicked and evil spirits in heaven. You see, the problem is that when people allow evil spirits to oppress and, yes, sometimes possess them, even then we're not supposed to fight against them, but the principality that is has power over them. But the main point here, fellow Christians, if you haven't picked up on it, the main point here is that we're called to fight. 
The life of Christian discipleship is meant to be vibrant and active, not passive and weak. When Jesus calls us to follow him, it is the greatest call that we can ever receive. But he calls us not just to find, not just to face, and not just to fight the battle. He actually calls us to learn to love it. He calls us to learn to love it. And why? Because it builds our character When we participate in contending for good against evil, we become more like Christ. If you've never read the book of Hebrews, let me commend it to you. You're probably all familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, that has that wonderful definition of faith. Faith is the evidence of things that are unseen. It's the certainty of things that are hoped for. But if you've never read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, it reads like a litany of the Old Testament saints. It's wonderful and it's powerful. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Rahab who helped usher the Israelites into the promised land. And I just want to read you this part to put the period at the end of the sentence that I'm talking about right now. From Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 32, the author writes, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, and escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to, plot, to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life." Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. And get this, this is how it ends. The world, the world was not worthy of them. The world was not worthy of them. What a powerful powerful statement. So my friends, what is it that we are commissioned to do as disciples? Last week I gave us an idea about the community of discipleship from our future assistant priest, Father Charles. This week I want to leave us with a story recently shared by our former assistant priest, Father Mark Polly, on the commissioning of discipleship. Last Sunday, Father Mark was preaching about St. Vincent St. Vincent is the patron saint of our diocesan cathedral in Bedford, where he is now the dean and rector. Vincent was also a deacon. Carl, where are you? I'm not, I'm not preaching at you. But if you are inclined to listen to what I'm about to say. <laughs> he was a deacon who lived in the late 3rd and early 4th centuries. Now, when the Roman Emperor Diocletian began persecuting Christians, Deacon Vincent and his bishop were brought before the Roman governor named Dacian. They were put in prison in Valencia, and they were given an offer. Get this. Deny Jesus. Throw your Bible into the fire. And we'll release you. That's all you got to do. Deny Jesus. Throw your Bible into the fire, and you can have your freedom. Well, instead, they told the judge that they were ready to suffer everything for Jesus. And they would pay no attention to their worldly and wicked threats. 
As you might imagine, that angered the governor, so Vincent was inflicted with all kinds of torture. He was stretched out on a rack, and his flesh was torn with iron hooks. His wounds were then rubbed with salt, and then he was burned alive on a red-hot gridiron. Remarkably, remarkably, he didn't die there. Then he was thrown back into the prison on the floor that was scattered with broken pottery where there he finally would die from his wounds. That's terribly graphic. And it's hard to hear. But here's the effect. There was a jailer. And that jailer witnessed the peace and the tranquility and the constancy of Vincent's faith. And that jailer repented. And that jailer became a Christian. Soon after Vincent's death, Christianity was legalized, and it even became the religion of choice throughout the mighty Roman Empire. Imagine that. Vincent had literally given his life in an act of self-sacrifice that saved one repentant jailer who was made in the image of God. And today, my friends, you and I stand on the shoulders of countless men and women just like that throughout the ages, who themselves were committed to being carbon copies of Jesus Christ, doing for others the very same thing that Jesus did for us all. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you should love one another. And greater love has no man than he lay down his life for another. So, brothers and sisters, what is our job? as disciples of Jesus Christ? What is it that Jesus has commissioned us to do? How do we show others that they would want to experience the glory of Christian baptism? How do we help inspire them into the beauty of obeying all that Jesus has commanded us? It turns out we do it the same way Jesus did and the same way the other disciples have done it. Our job is to declare and to demonstrate the victory of good over evil. My friends, Christ has already won the battle. By his life, by his death, when the demons were shrieking at his peril, he trampled down death by death and rose victoriously on the third day. And our job is to declare and demonstrate this victory and to be prepared to do that at all times and in all places with all people, even if it costs us everything. And there's just one more thing, if you'll indulge me. Did you notice the end of the gospel story this morning? It says that after Jesus declared and demonstrated this victory of good over evil, after this child of God was restored to his right mind when the evil spirit had been cast out of him, it says that at once, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the whole surrounding region of Galilee. No kidding, right? You would think there's something wrong if nobody had said anything to anyone given what had just as happened, had happened. And just as I said before, if no one says or does anything, nothing will happen. So here's a thought for us. That's the end of that story. What's the end of your story? What's the end of my story? 
What's the end of our story? Because right now that story is being written. We are writing it. And right now, the world is reading it. Right now, the world is reading our story. Yours, mine, individually, collectively, corporately. So my prayer for us is that the deepest desire of our heart here at Christ's Redeemer will to be and become those carbon copies of Jesus Christ. Testifying to the truth, declaring and demonstrating the triumph and the victory of good over evil in this world.